I've suffered racism most of my life and my, my dad suffered racism most of his life. And we need to accept that the racism occurs. Claire G. Coleman is a proud Noongar woman and a writer. A lot of her writing, like her books Terra Nullius and also The Old Lie, examine racism and the impact of colonialism on First Nations people. It's a racism that some deny exists. Others think it's just our history and we've moved on. But that's not Claire's experience. There's this perception, I suppose, that racism does exist in society, but most of the time it's been people who aren't victims who say it doesn't exist. Still, the majority of Australians are from a kind of Western European white ancestry and culture. And for the most part, they don't see racism. And when they do, there's, there's this kind of intense shock. So the racism against white people is so rare in Australia that they react with utter horror and shock when they have the slightest inkling that they may be considered to be lesser because of their white skin. Now, the, the constant rant about anti-white racism just weird me out because sometimes what they're complaining about is so innocuous that you can tell they've never, ever experienced hate. How are you hearing this? No doubt your own life experience will make you react to Claire's words in different ways. This might really speak to you because you've been copying racism or microaggressions your whole life as well. Or maybe racism is alien to you. You never see it or hear it because most people in your community come from the same background as you. There are two broad statements that I've heard in public discourse over the years. One is that Australia is a racist country. The other is that Australia is not a racist country. Well, they can't both be right. There has been an underlying portion of our society that had always had a strong negative views about people who come from different uh, uh, countries. In particular, if they're not Europeans, white, if they're not perhaps English-speaking background. And that proportion of 7 to 8% remained constant. Professor Fethi Mansouri is the director of the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation at Deakin Uni and also UNESCO Chair on Cultural Diversity and Social Justice. He's also a Fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia. Fethi knows this figure from looking at data sets in various studies and the Australian Bureau of Statistics. So according to this research, Australia has always had around 8 to 10% of people who hold negative views about non-white migrants. You would think that over time, with the adoption of multiculturalism, which is a very progressive kind of policy in terms of integrating migrants, you would think that following the 70s and the 80s, we'll start to see that kind of that figure that starts reducing. Unfortunately, what happened is in the 90s, in particular late 90s and the 2000s, and after, we've seen a pickup in that proportion of people who held strong negative views about diversity, multiculturalism, etc. And now we are talking really 15 to 20 percent. Wow, so it's almost doubled. It's almost doubled. It's almost doubled. Also, you need to look at the context and why things like this happen. This is Seriously Social. I'm Ginger Gorman. And that's what we're looking at today, the context of racism in Australia and why it's on the rise. 
there are many elements that come into the formation of prejudice. That could well be uh, in relation to cultural background, ethnicity, religious affiliations, adherence to certain value systems. All of that comes into it. So it's not a very neat kind of breakdown in terms of variables that would produce prejudice or a, a, a form of bias against a particular group or a cohort. It does change over time. It may well peak at particular points in time because of certain events, but also it could subside over a period of time only to resurface when there are other points of fissures, if you like, socially or points of tension. So indigenous Australians, Muslim Australians, uh, Australians of Jewish background, now in the midst of the pandemic, Asian Australians, in particular Chinese Australians, are really bearing the brunt of that kind of racism. And you, you can actually see it, you can pinpoint it historically when things will get worse for particular groups. So the war on terror, for instance, right? 9-11 has really ca- came with, with a huge increase in Islamophobic incidents that have been reported. It's not as if the incident itself, like out of context, leads to a, a, a surge in, in racism or a surge in, in particular racist attitudes and behaviors towards a particular group. It's not, I think it needs to be looked at in relation to the incident, absolutely, but also in relation to that race relations, the way we organize our society in terms of the actual demographic makeup of those societies have not really kept up with the fact that it it needed to reflect that diversity in, in everything we do. So for instance, in governance, in media, in education, in, uh, in everything. If diversity was reflected in key institutions across our societies, you will see that even when there is a a huge incident like 9-11, that people are very much well equipped to deal with that event simply for what it is, not to socially and culturally categorize whole international communities as being basically uh, reflected in those acts of few individuals who might have done and perpetrated those acts of terrorism. And so for me, it's yes, the incidence is a trigger point, but the incidence is also symptomatic of what we have not fixed as a society. Fetty's co-authored book, Racism in Australia Today, notes that this increase in racist attitudes has been especially felt by Indigenous Australians. We all know this isn't new, but according to Fetty, racism as we know it today is about as old as colonialism. If we look at when did we start thinking of discrimination, oppression, subjugation, all of those things, you know, which are really different words for for discrimination and racism, you would see that it was really uh, white Western Christian Europe going into other societies and territories and thinking that they are from an ethnically and culturally superior kind of group, and therefore they have almost a duty or, or, or they're entitled to go in and subjugate with a view of managing those, those societies because they cannot look after themselves. And those indigenous people in those societies, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in parts of Asia or Latin America, all of those societies were comprised of indigenous populations who had no say whatsoever in those encounters between them and these colonizers. For the next 200 years after colonizers settled in Australia, First Nations people were seen as subhuman. 
And those attitudes become ingrained, even if you don't consider yourself a racist. Even if you abhor racism, it's hard, maybe even impossible, to separate yourself from a social fabric that was threaded with displacement, violence and exclusion. We've taken for granted for so long, until the 60s basically, that they are not worthy of the same treatment as other Australians. And as they've become much more vocal in asserting their demands for social justice, for economic justice, for recognition in the constitution, for uh, dealing with some of the uh, legacies of settlement in, in, in this society, then many groups within Australia started to view them in different uh, ways. And, and as they become more demanding of those equal rights, in particular in relation to constitutional recognition and in relation to dealing with treaties, etc., many people have started to look at them in, in, in ways that perhaps problematizes them, even uh, justifies that treatment on the basis of some of the social problems that some indigenous communities are witnessing, which as a matter of fact actually come because of the direct correlation between oppression and subjugation and local uh, matters of development and community cohesion and, you know, uh, antisocial behaviour, all of those things. In other words, instead of acknowledging the impacts of colonialism and trying to rectify the wrongs of the past, people are doubling down. So Indigenous Australians are, as a matter of fact, a very good illustrative example of what happens when an ideology built upon a notion of superiority, of knowing you better than you know yourself, comes into play as a praxis, not just as a thought, as ideology, but becomes a basis of practical engagement. So how does this racism play out for people like Claire G. Coleman? The fact of the matter is that growing up with racism as a child and, and with my family suffering racism, it taught me that I was somehow lesser and that if I wanted to be seen as as equal to anybody else, I'd have to work really hard. My dad uh, has worked harder than almost anyone I know. And he's my dad's darker than me. And he has experienced more racism than, than I have because he's darker. But he's also worked harder than than any of his colleagues to in order to be um, to get a decent job. It's really, it kind of, it's slightly low-level traumatising to know that you and your family are seen as lesser because of your ancestry. There's a lot to unpack there, but one thing Claire said really sticks out for me, and that's how the shade of your skin can change the shade of racism that you experience. To an extent, I'm, I suppose, white passing to a degree, uh, and people's opinion, some people see me as quite Aboriginal and other people see me as essentially appearing white. And, of course, this creates problems because the, the people who, are, who consider me quite Aboriginal don't think I'm equal to them, and the people who see me as looking white don't think I should get some of the, any of the support networks or anything that Aboriginal people receive, which isn't that much, but they believe I shouldn't be able to call myself Aboriginal. This brings us to the tussle that exists between the colonial idea of what it means to be black and the cultural reality that being B-L-A-K black is not really about colour. Claire has written a lot about the idea of being too white, in inverted commas. 
It's it's actually really strange. It's hard it's hard to unpack this particular concept because it was actually white Australian culture that, in in order to protect whiteness, came up with the one drop rule. The one drop rule meaning that anyone who had even one ancestor that could that could be found who was not white, that person wouldn't be considered white, so they could protect whiteness. And that was a rule that was instigated in Australia back in the 19th century in, in, in the white Australia policy. And by that policy, of course, I, I'm not white because I, I'm, I have got more than one drop of Aboriginal blood. But on the other hand, there's this perception in Australia that Aboriginal people are given special treatment or special resources just because we're Aboriginal. And there's a belief that that people pretend to be Aboriginal in order to um, unfairly receive these resources and receive advantage from against um, non-Aboriginal Australians. When in reality, the few times it has occurred, uh, are far, it's far more rare than people think and it's far less likely that that happens than Aboriginal person suffers racism. That's, that's, a, a, that's just a simple fact. Aboriginal person is more likely to suffer workplace discrimination and not get a decent job than a white person to pretend to be Aboriginal to get an Aboriginal-identified position. And also, I think in Australia, there's this perception that Aboriginal people fit a certain stereotype, which is uh, dark-skinned, uneducated, spiritual rather than material, living in a desert community and not entering the capital cities. That perception is is patently false. Although the common perception of Aboriginal people is is dark skinned people living in in Aboriginal communities, in reality, the majority of Aboriginal people actually live in Melbourne and Sydney, and Adelaide. So, and and I think it it makes it easier for the um, racist culture in Australia to try and find a way to discount the Aboriginal people of mixed race, such as when um, Lang Hancock. Um, Jen Reinhardt's father called for Aboriginal people of mixed race to be all put in a camp together and for our water to be drugged to make us all sterile um, so mm-hmm. that we know more of us. Um, this is, I think there's this perception that educated mixed race Aboriginal people are da- possibly a danger to white supremacy and they want us eliminated. Lang Hancock was an influential Australian mining magnate and also the father of Australia's richest woman, Gina Reinhardt. The comment Claire is talking about was one of many overtly racist views that you might have heard politicians and business leaders spouting on the nightly news as solutions to Australia's so-called Aboriginal problem. Many were collated and used in the 1984 documentary Couldn't Be Fairer. The ones that are no good to themselves and can't accept things, the half-caste, and this is where most of the trouble comes, I would dope the water up so that they were sterile and would breed themselves out in future, and that would solve the problem. There is a lot to hate about that clip, obviously. But the thing that troubles me is that it's so extreme, so overtly racist, that it's easy to say that's what racism is, extreme and overt. Most people don't talk like that anymore. Therefore, racism is no longer a problem. But racism doesn't just manifest in words. Here's Professor Fethi Mansouri again. Just picture in your mind 1960s Australia, right? Picture in your mind 1940s, 50s America. 
really all forms of racism, you, you go try to go into a school in Suburbia, in Victoria, Melbourne, or whatever in America, and it will tell you no colored people allowed. So that is a very good example of old forms of racism. Segregation based along race lines or skin color lines, even to be more, more blunt. Now, newer forms of racism, they're much less about that, that open segregation discrimination, and much more about how we are treating, we are dealing with groups which come from those minoritized backgrounds, indigenous backgrounds, recently arrived migrants who are not from English-speaking backgrounds. And it varies a lot. There is a spectrum of racist behavior and racist ideologies which go from name-calling to very subtle avoidance strategies. Yes. And then there is even more than that. You know, there, there is the neighborhoods whereby it's not segregation as such, but when certain communities apply to set up or to establish religious buildings for practice, uh, for whole of neighborhoods come together and say, no, we do not want that. Uh, we, we are predominantly this, we do not want that. And, and that's not because we don't like Muslims or we don't like Buddhists or Jews or whatever, but simply it's just not who we are and we prefer not to uh, upset the status quo here. So you see it from urban planning, you see it from uh, makeup of school leaderships, you see it even of makeup of university leadership. There was a recent survey done by the Australian Human Rights Commission, whereby, shockingly, almost 98% of university senior exec were of a particular <laughs> ethnocultural background, which is white Anglo-Saxon almost. Shocking in, in this day and age, when you, when you think about how many working people in universities come from different backgrounds. What it is really is a system of oppression. That's, I mean, it's always about oppression, racism. It's about conveying an ideology, a belief that some social groups are inherently superior to other social groups on the basis of cultural, ethnic, religious background. Yeah? So it's that systematic belief that there is a hierarchy, if you like, of different groups and that one group is better than the others and therefore that group is entitled to a preferential treatment. Why does it matter that we talk about and think about racism and work towards trying to reduce and get rid of it in society? It matters for so many reasons. There should not be now, even before or in the future, there should not be a basis for any system, whether it's system dealing with institutional arrangements, that is citizenship, for instance, the provision of judicial justice, uh, a system that deals with uh, economic distribution of resources, interpersonal even relationships. There really should be no basis for any system that would take as part of its core assumptions that there's a hierarchy whereby someone by right of birth has a better set of features that will entitle them to a differential treatment. That goes against all the beliefs around social justice. If we don't do that, what we'll end up with is that a significant proportions of our communities and societies are basically hampered and constrained and not allowed to achieve their full potential and not allowed to make the contributions they can make to society. And, and so there's a loss 
to society, as a matter of fact, not just lost to those individuals impacted by racism, but to all of us as, as a society as a result of perpetuating an enduring system of structural inequality and, and oppression. Claire talked anecdotally about the traumatising effect of growing up with racism. What does the research tell us about the impact of racism on kids? In 2009, Fetty led a study with the Foundation of Young Australians and Deakin University that examined this with over 800 young Australians from across the country. School dropout and social disengagement were impacts, but the most frequently recorded impacts resulting from the experience of racist behaviour were feeling angry and frustrated and feelings of not belonging to the local community. Many of them talked specifically about the mental burden of experiencing racism, in particular in formal institutional settings like in in schools, and the difficulties they had in even talking about it, reporting it to teachers and to school leaders. In that study, the proportion of people who said we at least experienced racism once over the last year or so was extremely high. Over 70%. That is an extremely high number. It's incredible, isn't it? And then you've not just got health and mental health impacts. Presumably there's a massive economic cost to this fetty. Absolutely. And uh, actually one, one of the my colleagues who was co-author of this book, Emmanuel Elias, his whole doctoral research was on looking at the economic cost of racism. Really for Australia, it, it, it's in the billions of dollars. Why it's billions of dollars? Because lost productivity. When people are not mentally well, when they're suffering as a result of racism, even if they turn up to work, productivity will be diminished. But in many cases, they cannot even turn up to work because they are not able to go and engage. And you can add to that other lost productivity in relation to education, how education is impacted negatively by racism. And you look at careers and career pathways which are detrimentally impacted. But when you really quantify all of that economically, in terms of what we lose as a society, it's, it's unmeasurable in many ways, but if you want to measure it, it will be in the billions of dollars. I can, I can, I can assure you of that. After our interview, Fatty sent me information on the estimated figure on lost productivity linked to the health impacts of racism measured in GDP terms. His colleague and co-lead author, Emmanuel Elias, is the expert in this, and the reported economic cost of the experience of racial discrimination ranges between $21.1 and $54.7 billion. Look, the truth is I actually find it really depressing that we have to make an argument in dollar figures to make folks pay attention. Stepping back to the impacts of racism on young people, when it comes to reducing the problem, schools and education are great places to begin undoing some of this damage. If you take racism and boil it down to its attendant elements, you know, every single one of us, no matter the colour of our skin or our um, gender identity, we all have biases. You probably know Mark Fennell from a bunch of documentaries on SBS and ABC and also his podcasts like Stuff the British Stole. There is all sort of arguments why evolutionarily people have used stereotypes, you know, and, and things like that. But but at its core, we all kind of form quick snap stereotype judgments on different people. Those eventually sort of calcify into biases. And, and when you start making decisions on them, they turn into prejudices. And when it gets out of hand, that's your capital R racism. 
This is the idea that motivated Mark to take on the ABC TV project, The School That Tried to End Racism. The show explored a primary school-based program aimed at arming kids with the ability to identify racial bias and make positive changes. The thing is, when you say the word racism or you call somebody racist or, or you say, hey, that thing you did I think is racist, let me tell you, like, <laughs> you're, you're not going to get a good reaction for that person. It never works because everybody, and this doesn't matter the colour of your skin because certainly white people do not have the monopoly on racism, right? The moment you accuse somebody of that, they fall into a defensive mode, you know, no matter how light, nice yeah. they are as a person. So I find that moment very hard to navigate, right? So it's, it's actually the thing that struck me about it is like, okay, if we can roll back from that point, if we start to be aware of how we form stereotypes and how those things turn into biases and how that turns into prejudice, if we can start to kind of get some literacy around that and identify it, there's a lot of things that we could stop before they turn into racism. No one's suggesting it, it's insolvable in its entirety, but if we start to be cognizant of how those ideas form and we start to give kids tools for how to identify it in a way that is constructive and a way that is restorative and a way that brings everyone along for the ride, then it becomes a solvable problem. Mark says the project is about first understanding ourselves. No matter where we are on that spectrum of, you know, privilege and race and all those other things that we like to categorise people with, it's about working out where are we within that and what's the baggage we carry out into the world. But here's what Mark didn't expect from the project. Well, there's a few things I didn't expect. Was how game the kids were. You hear all the time about kids' brains just being like geared for knowledge and absorbing information. But sometimes when you presented with it en masse, staring in front of a primary school, I was like, oh, you're so ready for this. And these weren't just the gifted kids, right? These were actually quite a good cross-section of kids from across the academic spectrum. And they were so ready to absorb it and challenge you know, challenge ideas and engage on it. And I thought that was really impressive. Oh, Mark, I cried through the whole thing. I just found it so profound, the realisations that they were having about themselves and their identities and each other and the kindness that was coming out in them. Like it, it sounds simplistic, but it was absolutely profound. Like I was in floods of tears. I have to throw in a kind of firebomb here though (laughs) the evidence and research is showing that racism in schools is worsening in Australia and the question I have for you is from your experience with the school that tried to end racism did that seem like the case to you I think it'd be completely disingenuous to suggest it was a school filled with like raging racist children. It certainly was not, and I and I, it definitely wasn't. But but we all carry with us those stereotypes and biases, and certainly they were present within that that school, right? And so it doesn't overly surprise me that it's still very present in schools and getting worse because it's still very present in society and probably getting worse. And to large degree, schools are a byproduct of parents. And I think media is a big component, but particularly when you get into primary school, they've all got these hidden TikTok and Instagram accounts that they're not supposed to have. I think those things feed into it as well. So I would observe as an adult that there's a high level of racism and intolerance uh, in the adult population. The idea that racism in schools is getting worse, to me, is an indicator that racism in Australia writ large is probably getting worse. But you 
do seem to see some hope here, Mark. So what steps do you think could be taken to reverse this current trend where racism is in fact getting worse in this country? The school that tried to end racism taught me that these are solvable problems, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily suggesting, and no one actually is suggesting that that exact program should be rolled out in schools, but there are versions of it that are being run in different places around Australia. And I think it's really, you know, the, the program, you know, it was a pilot program to kind of see what aspects of it worked. It was also a pilot program to show what it could look like. One thing we've known, one thing we know is from looking at the US is anytime somebody tries to bring anti-racism lessons into a classroom, there is a certain cabal of, you know, of, of commentators that go absolutely to town on it and try and turn it into something like this ridiculous boogeyman that it is not. And I think part of why programs like that in, you know, television programs like that are worthwhile is to actually show people what it actually looks like in class, not let that be dictated by some ridiculous tabloid newspaper. So I think part of the project is kind of give people some visibility into, okay, so this is what a version of what it looked like. So I have hope because I, the pilot program we did, showed me that there was a market change. I'm not suggesting that that program should represent quantitative academic research, although it was certainly informed by it. But I would argue that the principles of it worked. And I think it's, I would argue as a parent that I think there's there's value in, in aspects of it being rolled out in schools across Australia. Now, I can say that till I'm blue in the face. Ultimately, that is a decision for departments of education, principals, teachers. They have to take up that mantle. But they, they listen to parents, right? Because parents vote. And I was inundated with, with parents and families that watched together. And I think I would just say, if you think it will work for your kids, if you think it would work in your school community, now is the time to start talking to teachers. Now is the time to start talking to um, principals and now is the time to start talking to departments of education or ministers for education. If you think you want your kids to have a, a more holistic understanding of what makes them different and what makes them the same as other people and, and strengthen those bonds by understanding difference. For what it's worth, Professor Feti Mansouri doesn't think Australia is a racist society. You know, we were always very careful about language. Language is very powerful. And we, I never would use the word racist society, for instance. I say there is racism in our society. We are not a racist society because by saying we are a racist society, we somehow characterise everything in this society to be racist deliberately. That is really a very problematic statement to make. But definitely there is racism in our society. Definitely the situation is not getting better. Definitely we need to have some more meaningful, deeper interventions in key institutions. How do we start doing that? The first thing we should start doing is actually talking about it. And uh, what is happening right now, uh, Ginger, is that some political leaders do not even accept that we have this problem. So you cannot really start making inroads if you're not even accepting that we do have a problem. This is a generational issue and it requires this kind of commitment. So we start with our kids, start with schooling, but to do schooling properly, look at our teacher training programs. To do that properly, you look at all sorts of other things that come into it. Then we can, we can talk about corporate leadership, we can talk about political representation, we can talk about economic justice. All of those things can come into it. Yes, certainly deal with the, the short-term problems 
in ways that you can try to improve as much as you can, but have a mid to long term agenda and commitment that we do not want to be in the same situation in 20, 30 years time. I'll give the final word on this issue to Claire G. Coleman, reading from her book, Lies, Damn Lies. Words are weapons. Stories are dangerous for they define who we are. They define our history. They can be weaponized. Stories and history are tools and weapons of war. Stories can be used as part of genocide because if you say people are extinct, other people might believe it. Stories can be part of genocide because you can use stories to erase a culture. Thanks for listening to Seriously Social. I'm Ginger Gorman. And if you're enjoying the podcast, one of the best ways to support us is to subscribe. And if you listen through Apple Podcasts, drop a review in there for us as well. We love reading them and it helps other people find us. Seriously Social is produced by Kim Lester, engineered by Mark Gargledonk, aka Baldy, and executive produced by Sue White and Bonnie Johnson. It's an initiative of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia. Next time, from It's Time to Yes We Can, the rise of the campaign speech and the inspiring words that stay with us long after they are first spoken. See you next time.